Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with the latest edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. My conversations this week focus on air safety as we acknowledge the 20th anniversary of an aviation tragedy, the crash in Paris of the Air France Concorde back in July 2000. Joining me will be Greg Fife, former lead investigator for the National Transportation Safety Board, Christine Negroni, the author of The Crash Detectives, and from the Smithsonian, Sammy Chittum, to discuss the lessons learned from other major air disasters and the lessons that still need to be applied. First up, my conversation with Greg Fife. It's a very interesting day, a day that I remember very, very well, and a day that my guest about to come on the air remembers very, very well. Uh, July 25th, 2000, 20 years ago today, was Air France Flight 4590. That was the Concorde that crashed just after takeoff at Charles de Gaulle in Paris. Uh, an amazing story, a fascinating investigation, a completely different probable cause that we were able to come up with. That was absolutely true. Uh, it spelled the ultimate end of supersonic travel, at least for passengers. And uh, But it also talked about some of the failures in aviation safety and regulations uh, by government agencies. Uh, joining me now, an old buddy of mine. I can actually say that because we've worked on so many different crash investigations together. He's the former senior air safety investigator with the National Transportation Safety Board. Greg Fife, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you, Peter? I'm good. Uh, let's just start with, with some basic principles here that you taught me, that no plane crash ever happens for any one reason. It's a combination of reasons that in concert creates a situation in which they can't recover and they lose the plane. Fair enough? Absolutely. Um, You can have a variety of things that happen in isolation that don't cause or contribute to an accident. But when they become 
part of a, a greater sequence of events. That's when um, things degrade, pilots have problems, airplanes don't perform, accidents happen. Exactly. And you and I first came into contact after a horrendous crash that many of our listeners might remember. That was Value Jet back in 1996 in the Everglades in Florida. You were the lead investigator on that, and uh, I'll never forget the pictures of you in wading boots up to your neck in the Everglades surrounded by alligators and other guys with shotguns just trying to retrieve wreckage. Yeah, that uh, that was one of those accidents, Peter, where, you know, if uh, it, it was the most it was one of the most devastating accidents I had to work just because of not only where it was, but we, you know, it was a low cost airline. We had a lot of unaccompanied minors. So there was a lot of emotional attachment in that one particular accident and the conditions of trying to recover enough wreckage so that we could determine an accurate probable cause in enhanced safety. That became the challenge. Once we got the wreckage and figured it all out, that was secondary to getting enough to actually figure it out, kind of like what we're going to talk about with the Concorde. Exactly. And we'll get back to ValueJet later because it's an interesting story that we have to learn from even today. But on the Concorde, let me set the scene for everybody listening. It was a charter flight of, a, of mostly German passengers flying from Paris to New York to get on a cruise ship. And the Concorde held about 99 people. It was a full flight. Uh, the passengers had packed for a cruise, so they were packed heavy, a lot of extra suitcases. And this is a plane that was essentially overweight. It was too many too many bags, uh, yep. too much fuel. It was overfueled. Yep. And then as we learned later on, something else happened as well. But most people think that the true cause of this crash had to do with the plane that took off. It was a Continental Airlines DC-10 bound for Houston. And on the takeoff, a, sl- a very slim piece of metal about the size of a ruler uh, fell to the runway from an engine cowling and was still on that runway when the Concorde came down the runway. And according to the original report, that piece of metal was struck by one of the tires of the Concorde, which at that speed and at that pressure and at that weight completely punctured the tire. The tire unraveled. Parts of that tire then ripped into the fuel tank in the wing, which is already overfueled, and almost created a sort of a sonic boom in that tank, which then ruptured. And then vapor, which then ignited in the engine. Uh, they lost one of the other engines. And we all know what happened. The plane ended up crashing into a hotel uh, shortly over the other side of the runway, killing everybody on the plane and a few people on the ground. That was the original report, correct? Yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, they they focused on was the other airplane, that, that thin strip of metal that was laying on the runway and why the tire burst as bad as it did. And then, of course, how it ruptured the fuel tank. Now, that airplane, as you, re- you recall, Peter, they use afterburner for takeoff. So kind of like a fighter jet, you know, that's what gives them the extra thrust. And that's why the, the fuel was able to ignite so quickly after, uh, after the fuel tank was breached. Right. And as many people may remember, uh, in, in, uh, in France, it's not an accident scene. It's a crime scene. That's their, that's yeah. their protocol. And it went to court. And Continental Airlines was found guilty of manslaughter in the deaths of 119 people. And uh, that's the way it was. That's the way it stayed until you and I got involved. And uh, I went over and did a one hour piece for Dateline. It was at NBC then. And what we learned was purely devastating. Uh, Was there a piece of metal on the runway? There was. Did the plane hit it? It was. But we found 
four separate sets of the most qualified eyewitnesses. Uh, the pilot of, of the air Fr- of, the, of the French president's plane that had just come back from the Tokyo summit. He was on the ground on his plane, looking right at the Concorde as it took off. We had an American Airlines 767 pilot who was doing the walk around to check his plane right before he took it off for New York, and he saw it. And then two French firemen who were in different parts of the airport, and they saw it. And all four of these independent witnesses, who the French court wouldn't let testify, they saw the same thing from four different vantage points. And that's what they reported. And what they reported is that there was smoke and fire coming from the plane before it ever hit that piece of metal. And that's where you got involved, Greg, and tried to explain it. And we started putting all the pieces together that 20 years ago today, when that plane pushed back from the gate, it was overweight, it was yeah. overfueled, and then a strange thing happened. They were, oh, they, one more thing, they were late pushing back, which means they'd be yep. late getting to New York. And the tower informed the pilot that the wind direction had changed, and the runway that he had selected now had a tailwind and not a headwind. Now, I'm not a commercially licensed pilot. I'm not even a pilot. But I can tell you, you don't take off into a tailwind. No, you don't. Um, Because you have an adverse effect on performance. And one other factor, it was a short runway. So here you have a situation where the pilot ignores the tower because he thinks he has enough power. So he takes this plane down the runway, and then the tire disintegrates, and he loses thrust, and he loses control, and he starts weaving up, weaving around the runway, and he's heading right for the 747 carrying the president of France. So that pilot definitely saw something going on because it was coming right at him. Yes, and, and at one point, And at one point, the Concorde actually left the runway. He went off to the side of the runway. He was, he was going down the grass, and he reached a point literally of no return. He was going yeah. too fast to stop, and he was going too slow to really maintain airspeed and get in the air. But he, at the last second, he pulled back on the stick. He did get airborne and missed, and he was trailing. Everybody remembers that terrible picture taken by a passenger on a car nearby of the, of the Concorde trailing 150 feet of flame. And he gets in the air, narrowly misses the French president's plane by only about 20 feet. And then he never gets fast enough to stay in the air. The flight engineer does something really stupid. He shuts down the wrong engine when he never should have shut down anything. And sadly, the plane basically pancakes in at only 74 miles an hour into the hotel. But that's just the beginning of our investigation. Because then we found out, right? Then we found out all the stuff that had preceded that. So, for example, the next day, investigators, and these are the French investigators before you got on board. The yeah. French investigators, what do they find in a maintenance hanger? The nose gear stabilizer bar that the maintenance guys forgot to put back on the Concorde before it took <laughs> off, which meant that's one of the reasons why he was like zigzagging, zigzagging down the runway. Yeah. The second thing they find, and we found it, is the tires. The tires had had 55 separate incidents of total disintegration on previous flights. It's crazy, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're figuring out what went wrong on flight 4590, and then we determined that the tires that disintegrated on this plane, the similar tires made by Michelin, had disintegrated on many other flights. And in fact, on one Air France flight, you remember, Greg, it went through the wing. That was the concern, was why that rubber shrapnel was able to puncture the wing um, so easily, given the fact that that is where the fuel is carried in what they call a wet wing. And it was able to puncture the dual-layer metal and get into and breach the fuel tank. And so 
we did a one-hour special. Greg was on it uh, for Dateline on the on, on the revelation, really, of what really happened on the crash of the Concorde, Flight 4590. And as a direct result of that show, they went back into court and they were allowed to testify, the witnesses. Our evidence was presented and the conviction was overturned. But that's in just one particular case. The real, the real you know, critical questions in every crash investigation, as Greg knows all too well, is not only what have we learned from this, but how have we applied those lessons so that it never repeats again? That's why when you were at the NTSB, you were, you were always pursuing the probable cause, but at the same time, you made urgent safety recommendations. Absolutely. And that's, that's really the whole purpose of the investigation is to improve aviation safety. The probable cause is part of the overall investigative process. But the benefit that comes out of these accidents and these accident investigations is the lessons learned, how we're going to improve safety going forward. And when you look at the regulations, Peter, when, you know, when our forefathers, if you will, wrote the regulation coming out of the 30s and 40s, but predominantly out of the 50s when the FAA did come into existence, the book of regulations was very thin, both for operating aircraft and manufacturing aircraft. But those regulations have grown in infinitum over the years because, as a lot of people will tell you, those regulations are born out of the blood of those folks that perished in aircraft accidents. And, you know, a lot of the time we don't know that there's a problem until a problem happens. You know, with the best minds working on building airplanes, creating airplanes, now we got computers that are designing the airplanes trying to, you know, engineer out all of those issues. In-service problems crop up that the greatest computer in the world can't foresee. And that's exactly. why it is so imperative for a thorough investigation so that we can ferret out those, those issues and improve aviation safety like we did. You know, I'm going back to, I mentioned ValueJet. In order to understand what happened at ValueJet, we have to go back even further to an Air Canada incident that happened out of Dallas, where a passenger went back into the bathroom during the flight and had a cigarette and then yeah. threw it out in the toilet and it was not extinguished and it started a fire in the toilet. And by the time the crew found out they had a fire on board, they had a real fire on board. They were able to make an emergency landing, but a lot of people perished. And as yeah. a result of that in investigation, what did they determine? that there was no smoke detection or fire suppression systems in the cargo hold or the cabins of any narrow-bodied plane, DC-9, 727, 737s. That was back in the 80s. Yeah, well, now let's cut absolutely. to night. Yeah, and now what did the NTSB do? They made an urgent safety recommendation to the FAA. You got to put them in. And the airline lobby was strong. They said it was going to cost them too much money, and the FAA would not make that regulation. Cut to May of 1996. The value jet flight from Atlanta, excuse me, from Miami. Uh, and we know the catalytic reason why that plane crashed, because there were improperly stored oxygen canisters that caught on fire in the cargo hold. But the poor pilots, because there was no smoke detection or fire suppression system on board, had no idea what was going on until it was too late, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, because of the, the extent of the fire in the forward cargo hold, and how hot it was, it was well over 3,000 degrees. All the flight control cables run right over the top of that forward cargo hold. So because the fire had breached this cargo hold, it started to burn into the control cables, and the crew was unable to control the airplane. And then because of all the toxic fumes that were circulated up into the cabin, um, it's presumed that both the crew and passengers 
probably had succumbed or at least were incapacitated by the toxicity of the fumes that were generated in a very short period of time. Exactly. And here's the, the, the terrible irony of all this. Even after that crash, even after you determined you know, that there was no presence of the smoke detection or fire suppression system, how long did it take the FAA to finally mandate the installation <laughs> of those systems? Come on, tell the truth. Years. <laughs> I mean, years. And to this point and to this day, Peter, to this day, they are still carrying oxygen generators on airplanes. Which makes absolutely no sense. You know, we talk about the Boeing 737 MAX. We were all well aware of the two fatal crashes in close proximity to each other in terms of timing. Uh, we know the plane's been grounded. And, you know, despite heavy lobbying by Boeing and the airlines at one point, that plane is still grounded. Uh, and it will probably fly again. But it, it called into question so many things that go back into a culture of behavior with the FBI, uh, the FBI, the FAA should be the FBI. In fact, the FBI yeah. is investigating, excuse me, the FBI is investigating the FAA and, and the manufacturer on this because of their close relationship. I mean, how can the regulator regulate an airline or a manufacturer when they're actually being told by the airline or the manufacturer what's right or wrong? It doesn't make any sense. And in this situation, we have a situation where the plane, and I think you'd agree with this, Greg, the plane on its own is not an unsafe airplane. The plane on its own, uh, it's, you know, it's just another iteration of an existing fuselage that goes back to 1969, or actually earlier than that. Earlier uh, than that, yeah. Earlier than that. Uh, but the real problem here is, how do you certify an airplane? And what process go, do you go through to, to basically ensure that there's transparency and that people can tell the truth, correct? Correct. But, you know, there are a couple things here. One, certifying an airplane is a very complex process, and it has gotten more complex as new generation airplanes come out, especially with all the new avionics and all the electronics that control airplanes today. You know, back when they were building DC-3s, when you pull, pushed and pulled the yoke, you were moving a cable that moved the elevator. You know, you push on the rudder pedals, you move a cable. Now it's all computer-controlled, hydraulically boosted. So you're just giving an input in ones and zeros to a computer, the computer that makes things happen. And it becomes a very complex process. The other thing is, is that Congress gave the FAA the authority because the FAA didn't have the resources, both, mo both monetary and manpower, to go to a delegated system. That is, you hire qualified experts who are working on behalf of the FAA. They go into the manufacturer. They are your designated representatives. They are technically an FAA representative, but they're being paid by the manufacturer. Now, that's, people a big, that's, a, that that's a big whoops. That's a big whoops. Well, they always thought that that was a conflict of interest, but they, anything that a DER or a DAR, that's a designated engineering representative or airworthiness representative, does in the factory, it still has to be approved by the FAA, the small aircraft directorate, the large aircraft directorate, or, or Washington, D.C. It's not self-certifying, and that really was a confusing discussion for the last year and a half. Boeing isn't self-certifying. They are 
doing what they need to do to meet the regulatory requirement. It was the cozy relationship, as it was um, um, characterized, that developed because there was a lot of not a lot of you know uh, over the shoulder looking that disappeared over the years. But exactly. every but every manufacturer, Airbus, Embraer, Bombardier, they all used the same designated engineering process. Why? Because the United States government, the French government, the Canadian government does not have the manpower or the expertise. And as, as it, on one of the public hearings, uh, the congressional hearings, if Boeing were to be the manufacturer and the FAA wanted to put people in that manufacturing facility that were actual FAA employees, they'd have to hire 10,000 experts and they'd have to increase their budget by a billion dollars. That's taxpayer dollars. Exactly. So, but but you know what? When you think about it, the first lawsuit sometimes can be a billion dollars after the fact. I, look, here's my question, though. We know that Boeing is the biggest, you know, the biggest elephant in the room, um, had tremendous lobbying power. They had tremendous pressure. Uh, it yeah. was, and, and this is coming out in the legal cases now. That's why you said there's a lot of shoulder turning or looking the other way. Yeah. And hopefully yep. they're going to fix that. Here's my no-brainer question, Greg, and you know it's coming. Every airline it has to certify to the FAA every year. They can evacuate a fully loaded plane with half the exits blocked in the dark in less than 90 seconds. And every year, surprise, surprise, they pass the test. And my argument is the way they pass the test is I think they get to choose the cast of Cirque du Soleil to do the evacuation. <laughs> They do. It, it amazes me because you and I fly a lot and you get on an airplane and you see, you know, grandma and grandpa and you see, you know, a lot of other folks. Um, I, I was on a flight where there were four disabled folks that were brought on in a wheelchair. How do they meet that 90 seconds? It always amazes me and it always has amazed me. And then, like you, you said in the, the opening of this segment, now you've got an airplane that's upside down. It's in the dark. There's smoke filling the cabin. How are they getting out? How is anybody really who doesn't have all of their faculties, how are they going to get out in 90 well, seconds? Yeah. Well, let's talk about one that we all saw on television. It was a 777 flight on British Airways from, from Las Vegas to London. Ironically, it happened to be the captain's retirement flight. How about that? And as they're, yeah. going, down, and as they're going down the runway, the left engine catches fire. Uh, they hear the fire warning lights in the cockpit. They see it. Uh, they're just below takeoff speed, and they're able to abort the takeoff. They actually stayed on the ground. Uh, the plane was intact, uh, and they ordered an immediate evacuation. Now, remember the 90-second rule? This is daylight. Yeah. Half the yeah. exits are blocked because the left side of the plane is smoke and fire. How long did that evacuation take, Greg? Minutes. Nine Lots minutes. Nine yeah. minutes. I mean, yeah. luckiest people on the planet. And that plane was on well, fire. Yeah. And, and the fortunate thing is, is that it basically stayed, stayed self-contained on one side long enough for everybody to evacuate. That's kind of a, an oddity, um, you know, with fires, especially when you have a fuel-fed fire like that. So they were, they were very fortunate that, uh, that they had that kind of time. Normally, you don't have that kind of time. Right. Now, here comes the crazy part. 
we can have an intelligent conversation, which I hope we're having now, about the ridiculous rules about evacuation, which are not realistic. And Congress has already asked the FAA to review those rules and review those, you know, those requirements because they're physically impossible. And all the FAA has done over the last two years is say, well, we'd like to study it. They've never come yeah. back. And while they're doing that, there are some airlines, even in the wake of the pandemic, and nobody flying that have taken their planes to maintenance sites to even add more seats to those planes. I know that that's, I'll tell you, uh, Peter, this is an issue I've had. They, they, the response to the NTSB, every time the NTSB writes a recommendation like that, they say, thanks for your interest in aviation safety. We'll study it and get back to you. They study it, you know, at nauseum for a year, two years, and they go, you know, we've looked at it. These are isolated events. We're not going to act on it. Or we did the economic feasibility study, and it's going to cost the airlines too much or the manufacturers too much. We're not going to impose it. You and I both know, you and I both have experienced and and watched many on-ground fires with airplanes. You know, when you look at British Air, you look at American Airlines, the 7-6 that had an on-ground fire. There was another fire on a 767 down in Fort Lauderdale, all within the last two, three years. How much more studying do you have to do? That has always been my question. You've got the data. You don't have to study the issue anymore. You've got to take action. And unfortunately, you and I have both heard this term as well, that until there is bloodshed, nobody's going to take any action. Yep. Although in previous flights there was bloodshed, uh, with child safety seats, you know, with kids yeah. under two, the lap kids. And the FAA said they wanted to study that after the NTSB made an urgent recommendation for a different kind of restraint seat for kids under the age of two. And they did. They took it to their lab in New Jersey. They did baby crash test dummies, and it proved everything that the NTSB said. And you know what the FAA then came out and said? I'm not making this up. You know I'm not making this up. They <laughs> said, we, we have incontrovertible evidence that We need this kind of restraint system for kids under the age of two, but we're not going to require the airlines to do it because if they do, they'll just raise airfares. And if they raise airfares, then people who would otherwise fly would drive and be killed on the highway. And my response to that is, when I want the FAA to talk about highway safety, I'll ask them. My thanks to Greg. You read Christine Negroni in the New York Times. She's also the author of The Crash Detectives, a fascinating book at the most challenging, mysterious air disasters in the world and how the investigators determined the probable cause. What are we talking about now? We're talking about air safety in general. It gives us a good peg to talk about it. It has not been front page news in the last couple of months other than the, you know, the political campaigns and COVID-19. But as we begin to get out and fly again, it's something that's going to have to come to the forefront because there are a lot of unresolved issues, especially with the 737 MAX, a plane that um, still has issues, uh, not to mention public optics issues, Uh, people afraid to fly on the plane, uh, and airlines right now that may not even need it anymore, uh, with fuel prices being as low as they are. Uh, Joining me now, uh, she's a great writer and the author of The the Crash Detectives, Christine Negroni. Hello, hello, Christine. Hello, how are you? Good. You know, when, when we think about the, the two terrible crashes of that plane in close proximity, at least in terms of dates to each other, and, you know, the behavior of the manufacturer, the behavior of the airlines, and to that extent, the, the, you know, to the same extent, the behavior of the FAA, 
That's all a recipe for even more disaster, isn't it? Well, yes, indeed, except to the extent, I mean, you could, you could see that as a glass is half full or a glass is half empty. Certainly, um, you know, what's happened to the FAA and to Boeing over the, over the past two years since the, the very first crash in October, almost two years ago, um, you know, has been a real wake-up call that, uh, you know, that, that things just don't stay secret anymore. And the kinds of behavior that Boeing was involved in regarding the design and, and certification of the MAX um, has come back to bite them in, in, certainly in my career covering uh, aviation, in the biggest way I have ever seen. I mean, I've just never seen the, the ramifications as great, as financially as devastating as uh, what, you know, what Boeing was facing. And that is even before COVID-19. And of course, that has a huge that will that will certainly have a huge effect. Already is having a huge effect on, as you already said, whether airlines are even going to want to take the aircraft uh, in the future. You know, it's so, interesting. Be- before COVID nineteen, Boeing was already losing orders. The plane certainly wasn't operating. Uh, airlines weren't exercising options. Since COVID nineteen, they've lost another eight hundred orders for the plane. It's devastating. Yes, yes. And, you know, back in, uh, in June, I wrote a blog post on my, my blog post flying lessons about questioning whether the 737 will fly again. I mean, everybody's sort of looking, will the FAA, will EASA, will all the agencies around the world, you know, sort of give the green light for the airplane to fly again? That is obviously a part of it, but that's not the only part of it. The other part of it really is you know, is an airplane, is an, taking possession of a new airplane when right now airlines can't find enough parking space for the airplanes they have, is that, uh, that going to happen? And, and frankly, I, I, I just can't see how it is going to happen. And then if you're going to take an airplane, I get it. You know, I get it. it's very fuel efficient. It's very, you know, does all these wonderful things. People who fly it say it's a great airplane. But, you know, you've got the, you've got the, the passenger issues. You've got the crew issues, you know, neither one of whom are enthusiastic about flying on this airplane. And then you've got the, you know, we've already got airplanes here. Why am I going to go, why am I going to take possession of another multi-million dollar airplane that i got to make payments on when I don't have travelers? And, and these and, are all factors yeah. you cannot take out of the cake mix at this point because they're all part of it. You know, when you take a look at what fuel prices are now, the fuel savings offered by the 737 MAX are quite minimal when you think about, you know, what it really costs you to operate another kind of a 737. Yes. And so a lot of airlines are rethinking it. But yeah, it one really you already called, have and one that's parked yeah. on the tarmac and one you got to be paying right now for the engine run-ups and, you know, the, all of the stuff that goes into keeping a grounded airplane, you know, fly, in fly, fly-worthy condition. Well, you asked the question last month. I guess I have to ask the question again, Christine. Is it going to fly in commercial service? I tend to think it will, but limited. Well, you know, I thought... I thought I listened to everybody, you know, I talked to a lot of people and everybody was saying, Christine, you're wrong. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And then I actually did an interview with a, a finance guy, right? So and you know, and then I, I at the, I was at the point where I'm like, Okay, I'm wrong and everybody else is, is right. But, you know, he did look at these numbers just as you did and you know, he he, a, he added them up and at the time I spoke to him it wasn't at eight hundred, it was more in the four hundred department. All of this has happened since June, these additional cancellation of orders. Um, so I think that, you know, perhaps it could have survived, perhaps it could have gotten over this PR, you know, this huge PR dilemma. Um, 
you know, it could have promised to do behave better in the future and all of that, but then, then there's corona. And, you know, I'm not a negative person by nature. I'm actually rather positive, but I think, you know, separate and distinct from the max, corona is going to pe- keep people out of airplanes for a long time. This is not just the next year things are going to be better kind of, kind of situation. I think it's many, many years before we return to the numbers we had before. We're talking with Christine Negroni, the author of The Crash Detectives. There may be one other thing keeping people off those planes, and that's what's keeping people from traveling right now. It's the same thing for different reasons, and that's fear. You know, it's people are very worried about that plane, and it's not just the FAA that has to recertify it. You have the British authorities. You have the Ethiopian authorities. You have the Canadian authorities. You have the British authorities. And they have basically said, and they've gone on record, that just because the FAA may recertify the 737 MAX is no guarantee that they're going to follow suit immediately. They're angry. They're angry for a couple of reasons. They're angry for specific reasons. Like, let's look at the Brazilians who went back and forth with the FAA. They wanted to have simulator training for their pilots on the MAX. And the, and the FAA did not want, or, or Boeing did not want, and therefore had convinced the FAA that that training was not necessary. And so eventually the Brazilians caved on that, and they didn't require training for their pilots so that they could all be, the, what the, the, the industry word is, harmonized, right? So they could all be in sync. And so what happened? We have an accident in which training is a, a significant component in, you know, in the factors that led to the accident. So the Brazilians are legitimately annoyed that they were sort of bulldozed into yielding on what they thought was a safety issue. The second part of that is, and, you know, and this is you can't really fault the FAA for this, or you know, or but but a lot of journalists sort of look at the FAA. I'm talking internationally. They look at the FAA and they, you know, they say that we're sort of the the, the Americans are sort of the gold standard, and you know, and I think other certifying agencies kind of like, oh, you know, is that right? And and I think it causes a little resentment about the arrogance of Americans and the arrogance of you know this reputation. So that you know, that's a second factor, I think. And then, of course, the last one, which is geopolitics. I mean, what can China get out of this? What can uh, the Europeans get out of this? And, you know, Trump has not made us the most friendly, the most lovable country around the world. And I think this is a time when other regulatory regulatory uh, agencies can look at America and say, you know what, it's time for us to get a little give back here. And so there, that's a huge factor too. All of these are part of of what goes into what's in play. And not to mention the pilots themselves who basically are saying, we want simulator training, just like the Brazilians did before, but on a worldwide level, or we're not getting back in the cockpit. Yes, yes, it's true. And, you know, there was, um, uh, there was a, a, a recommendation from, I believe it was the Ethiopians, uh, from their report, in which they said Boeing needs to test its aircraft, not with test pilots, who basically are trained to come out of upsets, to expect the unexpected, but to train pilots to what is the normal airline pilot, which is a guy who does this every day in a non, you know, in what is what is 99.99% of the time, not a, uh, a situation where you're expecting something unexpected to happen. So, you know, you, you can't train for the best pilot in the world. You have to try, train for the pilot that's flying us around. And that's not in any way to diminish those people. But simply, you know, test pilots are one breed, and airline pilots who work, you know, day-to-day are another kind of breed. And you have to consider what they are prepared to handle. 
Exactly, and, and they and, and they have different reaction times just because of their experience. Exactly, and you know, and and of course, so, no no less a pilot than uh, Sullenberger, Chesley Sullenberger, said at the congressional hearing, if your fail, if your backstop is that the pilot is going to be the guy that you know that steps in and breaks that chain of events, you know, your, your last backup, that is not a safety system. That's not a safety system. So, uh, you know, he, even he found that to be, and he's, you know, quite a, quite a pilot who was a, who did backstop an accident. But um, when you know when he says you, that that's not that's not a bad that's not a good engineering decision to say well if this breaks right. the pilot's going to step in there. We've been speaking with Christine Negroni, the author of The Crash Detectives, but she did another book on a story that I covered when it happened. Believe it or not, 24 years ago this month, it was the crash of TWA Flight 800 back in July of 1996. And on that particular day, I was actually in Atlanta for NBC. It was the start of the Olympic Games. I, was, I did the show that morning with, uh, with Brian Gumbel and, uh, and Katie Couric, and then got on a plane and flew to New York. It was a very, very hot day, about 100 degrees outside. And, uh, and the next thing I knew, as I was on a flight going to Italy, uh, I got the report on the plane that there was fire in the water, and that was the TWA 747 that had disintegrated in the air, and uh, nobody survived. Christine, that was a book you remember well. Well, yes, I wrote that book, but I have to say, 24 years later, sometimes I forget what's in it. You know, it, it was a long time ago, <laughs> but it was certainly emblazoned in your mind. I had no idea you actually flew over the flew over the site. That's uh, I I did. In fact, something. some people know who listen to the show that I'm a volunteer fireman. And that plane broke up and hit the water off Fire Island, which is where I'm a volunteer fireman. So my department oh my. actually responded to it, but I was in the air, so I was not there at the scene. But the most amazing thing about that story uh, is not what people think. It was the investigation itself and, and how they reconstructed every piece of metal on that plane in a hangar. And they could, they could very well easily see the beginning of how it happened. And, the, and, and one of the most thorough investigations of any airplane crash I've ever experienced, and I think you'd agree. It, yes, you know, four years, and, and, and obviously there was great public pressure, public international pressure, that that investigation be done right. But, you know, when you talk about what they saw on the wreckage, you know, there's so much controversy, even now, associated with TWA-800 by people who believe it was brought down by a missile or some other incendiary device outside of the fuel tank that caused the fuel tank to ignite and break the airplane apart. But in fact, very early on, I'm talking, you know, within the first week, when they started looking at the wreckage, it was very clear that the fuel tank, and this fuel tank, you know, for people who don't <laughs> don't spend a lot of time thinking about 747s, this fuel tank was in the center, the structural heart of the aircraft where the wings go out in one direction and the nose in front and the tail in back. So right there, like at the intersection of the X, that's where the center fuel tank is, and that's the tank that blew up. So um, what, what these investigators saw very early on was that that tank exploded from the inside out. Correct, correct. And by the way, the same thing happened on Pan Am uh, 103 when the investigators got out there and took a look at the, in Scotland on the ground in Lockerbie they looked at the way the metal was bent, and the metal was bent from the inside out. So whatever brought down that plane happened in the inside of that plane. 
Exactly. And so, you know, this, uh, uh, listen, people often try and engage me in debates over what happened to TWA 800 and because <laughs> this and that. And, you know, I'm, I, I was for a while happy to do that. I'm, I'm no longer interested in that debate. But, but the fact is it's that simple. Sometimes it's that simple. Look, there's a lot of layers to an accident investigation. But, with, you know, the metal doesn't lie. You know, the, those sorts of things sometimes can be very simple. Now, what caused, you know, the internal explosion and, you know, many, many, many other questions arise from there. But this idea that something penetrated from the outside into the tank, there's just no evidence of it. Correct. And, you know, if you listen to the CVR, which, by the way, these days the NTSB never lets you do, but you can get to the transcripts. And what we discovered, and what I'm sure you discovered at the same time, is as that plane was taking off, uh, or I should say before that plane took off, it had arrived from Athens, and it had flown into very heavy headwinds and had exhausted just about most of its fuel, so that the center tank itself was essentially empty. It maybe had 70 gallons of fuel in there, nothing else but fuel and fumes. It was a very hot day, nearing 100 degrees. But on the flight back, the one that was going back over the ocean, TWA Flight 800, it only had about 244 people on board, way short of its capacity, so the weight wasn't that significant, so they didn't have to fill the center tank. They filled right. the wing tanks. Right. And, and as they took off and they got to about 8,000 feet, the flight engineer said to the pilot, you know, we're, we have a little bit of a balance issue here. There's more fuel in the left tank than the right tank, and it's a standard procedure where they just pump fuel from one tank to another. So they pumped the fuel from the left tank to the center tank and then from the center tank to the right tank, it never got to the right tank because the ar- the wires in that center tank had become so corroded by all that toxic fuel over all those years. It was about a 21-year-old airplane that when they turned the, fu- the pump switch on to pump the fuel from the center tank to the right tank, that's when the wires arced. That's when the spark happened in a, in a tank that was only filled with really fumes. And there's your explosion. My thanks to Christine. Last but not least, my chat with Sammy Chittam, who writes the Smithsonian Channel's Air Disaster Series with another perspective on air safety. As you may have noticed, we're talking about air safety. This being the 20th anniversary of a terrible incident in aviation history, the crash of Concorde Flight 4590, the Air France flight in Paris, and 20 years later, what we've learned about it, what we've applied those lessons, if any. And of course, we've also been discussing whether or not supersonic transport for passengers, commercially paying passengers, may have a future even now. But, you know, in order to discuss the present, we even have to go back to the past. And when we were talking earlier with Greg Fyth or with Christine Negroni, one of the things that keeps coming through is that when there's an accident and the accident is investigated, what you learn about that investigation tells you about some crazy connectivity of bad behavior or missed clues, or basic ignorance, or in some cases, basic arrogance that allowed all of those elements to combine to cause that crash. And then, of course, the question becomes, can we learn from this? My next guest, Sammy Chittam, who's the author of The Last Days of the Concord. But before she did that one, she did another book. In fact, it was her first nonfiction book. It was called Flight 90, The Flight 981 Disaster, Tragedy, treachery, treachery in the Pursuit of Truth, a story that I actually covered when I was a correspondent for Newsweek. That was the flight of the Turkish Airlines plane that basically uh, imploded and then crashed. I mean, at, at, a, at high altitude when the, when the cargo door literally blew in. And, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, with our guest, Sammy Chittam. Hello, Sammy. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about this important subject. 
You know, when you go back to that to that terrible tragedy, that's 1974, that's, you know, 50, almost 50 years ago, 46 years ago. Uh, what you find out as you begin to backtrack about how this door could have blown in, uh, you know, you go back and you find out that before that terrible crash ever happened on a DC-10, before that ever happened, there was another DC-10, an American Airlines DC-10, that was yes, flying around, right. it was flying in the United States, and guess what? That door blew in, and when that it door did. blew in, the the, pre- the depressurization basically collapsed the passenger floor above the cargo hold. It crippled. It did. It was a terrifying. Yes. Terrifying, and and it crippled. And much of the uh, the plane's controls, because the controls ran under that floor, and the pilots right. did, and the pilots only had at his disposal throttle. And unbelievably, yeah. this was one of the most unbelievable emergency landings in the history of modern aviation. He literally put the plane down. Uh, I believe in in uh, either Detroit or Windsor, Ontario, um, and saved everybody. But then comes the interesting part that you wrote about. And that is when they investigated to see how did that door break in, they determined that the subcontractor for that door, when it was built, actually out in Long Beach, California, General Dynamics, did not put together and did not design together a proper latching mechanism and a locking mechanism on that door that could withstand that pressure. And so when the FAA, exactly, so when the NTSB investigated, they found this out. They made an urgent safety recommendation to the FAA to to, to to all the operators of the DC-10 saying, don't fly this plane until you can fix the door. That would normally be called right. a severe airworthiness directive, an AD. And That's there are many right. different kinds of ADs. That's the most severe, meaning we've got a problem. It's bad enough. So you cannot fly this plane until the problem is fixed. The economic impact of that kind of an AD is severe but it's necessary when it's actually when it's actually done that wasn't done in this case it was just a service bulletin that mm-hmm. by the way there's another ad that the that the FAA could issue called a modified ad that says you know we've got a problem we want you to fix it and you need to fix it by such and such a date or you can't fly and then there's the easiest one of all called the service bulletin Sort of what you might get from the, from a Mazda dealer or a Chevy dealer saying, mm-hmm. you know, we got a problem with the taillight, so the next time you take it in for service, you might want to look at it. That's what happened in this case. But in this yeah. case, the operators of that plane in the United States, which in those days were uh, Continental and American and United, uh, they took that service bulletin relatively seriously, and they fixed that door mechanism. However... They weren't the only operators of the DC-10. Overseas, there were many operators of the DC-10, including Turkish Air. And they got that service bulletin, but nobody paid attention to it. They never got around to it. And then on flight 981, operating from, uh, from Paris, we all know what happened, don't we, Don't we? I mean, we just, it's just terrible. Yeah, it's horrific. Absolutely horrific. I think it may have been the most, one of the most uh, gruesome uh, plane crash sites historically in the 20th century it's really something beyond a nightmare and the bodies were everywhere uh, body parts hanging from the trees scattered among the luggage um not a single survivor of course so it I was know. uh 
and, and it was all preventable. You know, that was a that was a brilliant summary of everything that led up to it. I would add one thing that McDonnell Douglas also knew about the defective latching mechanism. They could have fixed it before they sold that plane to Turkish Airlines, but they were much more interested in selling those planes and moving them out and not taking a loss on them than they were in fixing this really incredibly dangerous design problem. So, you know, they were does as that ring, at fault. Sammy, does that ring a bell to you in terms of the Boeing 737 MAX? Yes, yes. I, I would have to say that when I was, I saw that, uh, and I saw that the, that the manufacturer really should have known and had had enough indication early on that they had a problem that they could address. And it was a, they were both design problems. They were built into the plane, something that the airlines inherited when they got the plane, a design problem. And it should, that should not, the plane should never have been built and manufactured and sold with those kind of problems, safety, real safety problems in the plane before it ever takes off. And speaking of that, let's cut to uh, 26 years later, 2000, 20 years ago today, Concorde flight, the Air France flight 4590 taking off from Charles de Gaulle, the same airport, by the way, that the Turkish airport, the Turkish Airlines plane was was going from. True, and, very true. And, yeah, and... As it's going down the runway, the tires essentially yeah. disintegrate. And one yeah. of the things that we did in our investigation is we discovered, and this was mind-blowing to us, that there were 55 previous cases yeah. of Concorde tire disintegration prior to this crash in which That's the right. safety of the plane was, was really at risk, and nobody fixed and that it. And that was 60 times the rate, that failure rate was 60 times the rate that you would see for tire failures, whether they were blowouts or deflation in other comparable passenger aircraft. And that problem continued. It continued. It got, it got, it got a little better when, when they uh, quit buying retreads, but it never went away. And one of the reasons they couldn't fix it because there was no off-the-rack tire that they could buy, okay, to replace the ones they had, which which were not strong enough, not tough enough to withstand all the forces that were whenever these Concords took off. And this was a chronic problem at, that was that was not dealt with. And so listen, you're you're a former you're a former crime reporter. Although I, I hesitate to call you a former crime reporter because in reporting <laughs> the Concord story, you were reporting a crime. It was criminal negligence. Yeah. Yes. Now I was following uh, in the footsteps of other reporters when I put this story together. And the, all the journalists who covered the crash did a tremendous job of documenting all of this. And also the investigators, you know, you're the travel detective, and these, uh, the investigators assigned to find out the cause of the crash, I think they also did an impressive job. And they, uh, in the end, uh, really went to the tires when that tire um hit that wear strip that was dropped by a DC-10, by the way. What an it was. Plane, right? Con- it was. Yes. It was a Continental DC-10. It was a wear strip off of a DC-10 that fell down there. And it wasn't even there for five minutes. And then... Um, People still think that, you know, it was the supersonic travel that, that, that was the danger here. It wasn't. It was the tires, wasn't it? No. That's right. That's exactly right. 
So, and, and I, I believe the number is, is 57. There were actually 57 uh, over the course of the uh, the two fleets, uh, almost uh, 30 years. And this very high rate of tire failures really led up to this disaster. And now in this case, what happened was the, the critical element here this time was that although other fuel tanks, which are above the tires in the, that were in the, in the wings of the Concorde, were not significantly damaged, this time one of the tanks was ruptured. There was Correct. a massive fuel leak. And that massive fuel leak started a low-torch fire that burned the plane uh, in, a, in a minute. That's really the whole crash took less than a minute and um, 18, a minute, 18 seconds. Correct. And the, plane and, was and the most interesting thing that people do, don't realize about the, about the Concorde is from a technological perspective, it's really a 35-year-old F-4 fighter jet that was extended to carry passengers. The, the technology goes back to the 50s and it had to carry so much fuel across the Atlantic that the plane was essentially a flying fuel tank. It was 14 it was. separate tanks. And the role of the flight engineer, interestingly enough, was to constantly shift fuel from one tank to another to maintain right. the plane's center of gravity. That's right. And not, uh, many people, that's a very important insight. So this thing was just loaded with fuel and fuel to on takeoff. It was full to maximum capacity, incredibly heavy. It needed all of that fuel to make that supersonic uh, trip across the ocean. And... Perfect. Once 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 one of those fuel tanks was ruptured and a fire began, there's no way they could put it out. And by the way, the pilots, uh, they uh, they thought they had an engine fire going. That's what they were trained to deal with an engine fire. This is not an engine fire. It was a small, not unstoppable, low torch type fire coming out of this ruptured tank. And in fact, there was really nothing the pilots could have done to save the plane. Nothing. Well, what sealed their doom was that in the operations manual of the Concorde, it basically says, below 800 feet, under no circumstances do you ever shut off an engine. You need all the thrust you can get. And the flight engineer on this plane, without ever talking to the pilot, shut off the wrong engine, an engine that that actually had thrust. And so when that happened, their their fate was sealed. That was was probably, you just brought up, the one thing that one of the crew members did, in this case, the engineer who had this in, in, incredibly difficult job of monitoring all these alarms and flashing lights and reports, um, and he had been trained over and over again how to deal with an engine fire. He thought he had an engine fire. He didn't. He shut it down. They had that landing gear stuck in place. They could never, at that point, they could never get the speed they needed uh, to take Correct. off. Correct. And... I don't think they ever got over 200 knots, and I don't think they got much over 200 feet in the air. I think they were at 180 feet when the plane actually just fell like a just dropped. Well, Sammy, right I'm going to uh, Sammy, you're, you're you're right, but I'm going to tell you the actual speed they were going when they hit. They were going 74. They were going 74 miles an hour. That's it. Wow! Wow! That's yeah. shocking. I mean, it was just chattering along, wasn't it? And it was burning. The the wings burned. You can't fly a plane when the wings are disintegrating. The plane that's, that's, burned. And think of the passengers. Right. Think You're of right. the passengers. Just terrible. Just um, terrible. It was, but it then was again, it was, But then again, there are lessons to be learned from that. And if supersonic travel is going to come back, and we're talking about that, uh, or we talked about it earlier in the show, uh, 
it's not going to come back the same way. It's not going to be 99 passenger planes uh, because right. it's too expensive to fly, uh, even for the right. elite travelers. Uh, British Airways and, Amer- and, and Air France never made money on it. Uh, it was no. their it was their big loss leader. It was it allowed them to fly the flag, especially the British. They they branded their entire airline around the Concorde. But the bottom line is, if it does come back now, there'll be smaller, maybe twelve or fourteen passenger corporate jets. And as long as they can mitigate, or at least try to mitigate, the sonic boom problem, then they got a yes, shot. They do, and they that's and and uh, and NASA was involved in that, and they were working with, uh, I believe, it was Lockheed Martin to try to develop an experimental X plane that would have like a sonic thump instead of a boom. Uh, yep. So that and uh, that that noise pollution was always the problem with the Concorde. It was. Why couldn't fly over the U.S.? It was. It was. Uh, you're right. The turbo engines taking off were incredibly noisy. And by the way, Sammy, on the days in the summer when the QE2 used to cross the, the North Atlantic between Southampton and New York, every morning at 8.30, the captain of the ship would come on board the loudspeaker and say, ladies and gentlemen, in about 10 minutes, you're going to hear a loud explosion. There's nothing wrong huh. with the ship. That's the Concorde passing overhead. Wow. I had yeah. never heard that anecdote. My thanks to Sammy Chittam, Christine Negroni, and Greg Fife for joining me today. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel Podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, or review the Ion Travel Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news updates. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.